Hello and welcome to Exploding Helicopter, where we celebrate the cinematic art of helicopter explosion. For too long, this art form has remained unloved, undocumented and unrecognised. So our ongoing mission is to recognise those films and filmmakers which gift us creative and ingenious chopper fireballs, all with the scholarly aim of furthering the appreciation of our favourite movie trope. My name is Will and I'm the head honcho of the Exploding Helicopter website and podcast. On this show we're going to be looking at the sci-fi classic The Matrix. To help me with that I'm joined by one of Exploding Helicopter's top writers. I've unplugged him from his gloop-filled pod, downloaded the highest forms of movie criticism into him and dressed him in skin-tight PVC leather. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi Will, good to be back. (laughs) You were obviously a guest on our uh, inaugural show, uh, where we uh, discussed the James Bond film, The Spy Loved Me. So uh, as this is your second appearance, you're sort of now moved above the... Uh, you're no longer the George Lazenby of this project, and sort of are now firmly uh, on a perch along with uh, Timothy Dalton. That's not a bad perch to be on. <laughs> okay. Ultimately, ultimately, we're aiming for Roger Moore. Timothy Dalton's a good step towards that. Right, well, before we uh, take a look at The Matrix, um, this is the bit where I sort of ask you about a, a film that you've watched recently, and I think you've watched a very interesting one, uh, haven't you, Joe? Oh, yeah. It's um, it's a, I suppose, a, an equivalent of straight-to-DVD type film. This is straight-to-streaming. straight to, straight to streaming. Uh, It's a zombie film called Dead Rising Watchtower, which is, frankly, a terrible film. <laughs> it's... Effectively, a, a zombie film that's, I think, based on a series of computer games, and I happened to be playing a zombie as an extra in it, and was was interested in watching it a to sort of see how the the things the small number of scenes that I ended up in turned out ultimately, but also there had been in the particular scene that I was in there had been some mention of helicopters and I had actually had a, a sort of secret hope that there was going to be a helicopter explosion in that film and that I could then sort of say that I've been in a an exploding helicopter film and sadly having watched what over an hour and a half of it there were there were no exploding helicopters what a disappointment it's been a waste do you do anything particularly memorable in your role as a zombie? Do you get uh, do you get killed? Do you uh, sort of run after the hero? Do you get to go? <laughs> we had we had some specific direction for for sort of the pace that we were supposed to approach the the main character, and, and the person was like, think think Walking Dead zombie, but so quicker than that, but not twenty eight days later quick. <laughs> Well, see, this this is increasingly a, a problem for sort of zombie filmmakers because the, you know, if we go back to the days of like George A. Romero, you know, zombies were very, very slow moving, essentially shuffling along. But then sort of like everything over the years, things have just got faster. And, you know, we had, what was that, uh, World War Z, where we had sort of zombies who were like almost like Olympic athletes. We did have also a, a, a big explosion that uh, my zombie was caught up in. And ultimately killed by. So I'll be honest, it was it was a cold evening's work. It was a night shoot, and it involved sort of post post explosion lying on a an extremely cold concrete floor whilst um, covered in blood. So yeah, good times. Is there anybody in this film that we will recognise? So probably the best known person that's got a small role is Rob Riggle, who uh, was a correspondent on The Daily Show. There's also the uh, 
Vancouver-based actor Dennis Haysbert, who used to be President Palmer in 24 and appears in quite a lot of the locally produced film and TV here. Excellent, excellent. Well, I will be uh, tracking that film down as soon as I finish on this uh, podcast, Joe. You'll be, uh, I need to see you as a zombie. I'm so small that you won't actually, you won't know it's me. Don't break my heart like that, Joe. <laughs> okay, well, let's not delay any longer. Let's hack into The Matrix. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? It's the question that drives us, Neo. What is the Matrix? It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You are a slave born into a prison for your mind. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. Try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague, and we are the cure. So The Matrix came out in 1999. It was directed by the Wachowski brothers. Obviously, this was before they became the Wachowski brother and sister. The film stars Keanu Reeves as a hacker who's recruited by resistance fighters to help lead a rebellion against the computers that have enslaved the human race. Uh, On its release, The Matrix was a phenomenon, both in terms of uh, its box office, uh, but also in terms of the special effects and the style with which it presented its story. Joe, what are your memories of seeing The Matrix and how do you think the film holds up today? Well, I saw it when it came out in 1999 and I just remember at the time being it was one of those sort of cinematic experience films that you you just had to go and watch. And yeah, I just remember being pretty much blown away by it at the time. Like a lot of the a lot of the, the special effects that um were used in it seemed to to be completely innovative at the time certainly on on the scale that they were used in this film it just seemed like a uh the, the film of its of its sort of year if you like and as a standalone was just a just felt like a really good film unfortunately one that perhaps retrospectively is slightly ruined by the the two very poor sequels that came out Yes, well, we'll uh, we'll come on to uh, those a bit later, I think. But yeah, I completely agree with you. When uh, this film came out, I remember um, it coming out, and um, it seemed a real game changer at the time. Like the special effects definitely seemed to be much higher, sort of head and shoulders above other films that are around at the time. And there's obviously the the the, the very sort of famous um, sequence um, at the end of the film, sort of in the corridor where Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu Reeves are sort of going down that corridor, sort of um, shooting people. Some of the camera moves as well earlier in the film, the way in which sort of the action would pause and the camera would swing around. You know, these were sort of uh, little tricks which, yeah, maybe had been sort of done in other films, but the 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 scale with which they're presented, you know, they're sort of a whole sort of they're used throughout the film in a in a way in which we hadn't previously seen before. So the Matrix, yeah, seemed a real game changer in sort of uh, 1999. But how do you think it sort of holds up today, though? I think it still holds up as a as a film in its own right. I I do feel I do feel it has been slightly weakened by not just the sequels, but I, I suppose the other films have potentially done some of the some of the aspects that they they did in this film perhaps a little bit better. I know that um for example they had the same fight choreographer for Kill Bill and a lot of the sort of 
close sort of kung fu type fighting seems to seems to be sort of directly transferred onto that, but perhaps done slightly better by uh, Kill Bill. But I think in it in its own right, I mean, it, it was an enjoyable film, and I think it's probably one that you will look back at that sort of era in the nineties as being probably one of one of its sort of standout films of that decade. I would agree with that because I think that watching the film now, it doesn't have the wow factor that it did have in 1999. So I think if you were watching this film today, I think you would, you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't have the same reaction to it, the way in which sort of you and I did when we sort of first saw it, um, sort of 15, 16 uh, years ago. What for you are the strongest and weakest elements of this film? I think the strongest, strongest bit, which we've touched on already has to be some of the big set pieces that are in this film. I think a lot of the fight scenes are just good, good sort of old fashioned sort of fights between, like mainly, I guess, the Lawrence Fishburne character Morpheus and Keanu Reeves's Neo, particularly sort of in the, when he's training up and going through all of his kung fu training in the dojo. I think that's, that's a sort of good set piece. And the, the shoot 'em up in the, in the lobby, which, uh, you mentioned, uh, Keanu Reeves does with Carrie Ann Moss's character Trinity. I think that, that I am re- even rewatching it now. Like I, it's, it's a really enjoyable sort of scene that sort of sets, sets up sort of the, the finale really very well. And one that like, so there's so much carnage in it that you just at the end of it, just have to sort of sit back and, and sort of take a big, uh, big sort of pause to soak it all in. Well, I see that scene sort of differently now from the perspective of 2015, because I, I would agree with you. Back when I first saw this film, that sequence was, you know, it was amazing, was, was sort of my, you know, bordering on mind blowing. But watching it back today, it seemed to me a little bit dated. And I felt that what the the aspect of it that really sort of dated it was the use of slow motion and it just feels like charlie's angels yeah (laughs) it just yeah i think i just found the use of slow motion which at the time i thought it was amazing whereas now i think perhaps a different um a different sort of style of of filmmaking is is now sort of popular or is now the fashion and just feels like that that sequence just it feels yeah it just feels like it sort of slows down unnecessarily and um it just feels a little bit too sort of self-aware or self-conscious and yeah i i i felt its use was just a little bit just made it feel a little bit dated for me i think i think part of that is a little bit unfair i think a lot of films have obviously sort of taken that on as a as a sort of style uh, in sort of the years uh, subsequent to this, but I think if you if you do try and sort of look at it through the perspective of 1999, which I I sort of have tried to do through sort of rewatching it this time round, it still feels quite quite innovative. And yeah, it might not be the not might not be sort of the style that is popular at the minute, but I think I think you have to appreciate it for what it was at the at the time that it came out. Oh, that's a, that's a fair comment. But uh, I think for me, one of the strongest elements of the film, which I really appreciated, um, even today, was actually the style of the film in terms of the, the look of it. And mm. it, the, 
the set design and the wardrobe is actually for a sort of dystopian um, sci-fi you know action film it's actually very very simple you've got these you know there's a green color palette the buildings in which many of the scenes take place have this sort of abandoned slightly almost victoriana type feel to them the use of old telephones is and sort of these old leather chairs kind of add this sort of retro feel to it but aside from that there's the settings are very very plain much of the wardrobe of the main characters again is is really really simple and i think that that actually gives the film a slightly timeless quality in a way in which you know some sci-fi films which have tried to be very very ambitious in terms of their set design end up looking 10 15 20 years down the line end up looking rather dated i think particularly the the use of the green filter for for a lot of the uh, scenes within the matrix i think worked works really well and and the color palette seems seems particularly sort of appropriate in its sort of sickly sickly sort of quality and it's it's trying to make it like appear an environment that you don't really want to be in and i think that that works well on the on the costumes i don't know i looking looking back at it now it does sort of seem like it's a bit of a pvc fest if you like and <laughs> i like on neo's character i mean he's got the long long leather jacket and long leather coat sorry and I don't know. I I I was looking at it and thinking hair flick from a low low, but <laughs> perhaps that's a bit harsh. I think that is um, that is a, perhaps a tad harsh, but I mean I would take more issue with say Carrie Ann Moss's uh, wardrobe in this film, which essentially seems to be designed purely to um, titillate uh, teenage boys. But I was also fascinated by, um, I actually spent quite a bit of the time watching this, was fascinated by Lawrence Fishburne's sunglasses, which actually were, I don't know if you noticed, they were actually sort of uh, pince-nez because they didn't have any, um, they didn't have any arms on the sunglasses. They just uh, rested on his nose. And uh, I spent a lot of the film sort of, you know, watching them to see, you know, how on earth he actually kept them on his face. That's remarkable. I hadn't even, hadn't even noticed that, but... That makes his performance where, uh, I mean, quite a lot of the scenes, he's, he's very stationary. Um, <laughs> perhaps that's, perhaps that's why it's just so that he's, well, clearly, clearly too concerned that the glasses are going to fall off. Perhaps there were like thousands of retakes because just as he was getting to the end of his uh, monologues, his, his glasses would fall <laughs> off and they'd, oh, cut! <laughs> Go again! Places everybody! <laughs> but yeah, you need to go back and uh, you need to go back and check that out because uh, yeah, it is. Um, I do, I do, yeah, it's interesting because yeah, he does Fishburn in this film does give a very sort of he has all these um, slowed down gestures which you know you kind of think are maybe part of his characterization, but actually maybe it was just from a purely practical reason in the sense that he didn't want these bloody glasses to fall off his face. I've got as a as a note here. I've got uh, next to next to Lawrence Fishburne bullet time dialogue. I think he he just seems to seems to slow down absolutely everything of his lines. He gives what I would consider a borderline pompous performance. Um, uh, he 
treads a tightrope in this film. He's got all these, as, as we talked about, he's got these slowed down gestures. He's got this very mannered speech. Uh, he, you know, he's trying to sort of give off a sort of quasi-regal air. And he comes perilously close, in my mind, to um, giving a spectacularly pompous performance. But um, I think he just about stays on the right side of it. I'd agree with that. I think... Um... I'm not sure if you're aware of the other people that were being considered for his role, but I think of of those that, that it could have been, I think um, they probably picked picked correctly. The other ones that were being considered were John Renault, who turned it down so that he could go for Gladi- uh, for Godzilla, and Russell Crowe was the other other main one that apparently was was considered, and I think he's. He's quoted as saying, I just didn't get it, as in the plot. <laughs> I couldn't get past page 42. I do have some sympathy with Russell Crowe on that on that perspective, because the story, there is an awful lot of kind of quasi-mystical nonsense in this story. You know, you've got... That, you know, they're, everyone, the characters are searching for the one. They're, you know, they're, they're talking about their destiny and you've got this character called the Oracle and their homeland is sort of Zion. You know, it's all, it's almost like a sort of borderline sort of religious cult. And, um, <laughs> you know, I feel, especially having seen the sequels, like the Matrix, uh, this is probably where the Wachowskis managed to balance sort of all of those allusions to some sort of fantasy type storytelling, but also with, you know, a clear story that keeps, you know, the audience who, you know, don't want to immerse themselves in some sort of other world, keeps them on board. I think one of the one of the big disappointments about the sequels, as you sort of allude to, is the the bits that don't work well in this film, which I think are the the like strong nods to to religion are just amplified to a ridiculous extent in the in the sequels somebody somebody needed i think at that stage to sit them down and remind them of what worked well in this which was not any of the stuff that they decided to focus on in the second and third films they keep it simple in this film so you you get a little bit of the backstory as to how the how the world ended up in the place that it is in at the moment but there are lots of other things that you don't see so you don't see people talk about zion this place where the last humans are living but you don't see it you don't Mm. actually see other than the crew of lawrence fishburne's uh, ship you don't actually see any other humans um, in the film and so you know they create this great sort of sketch of a world which you can then uh, fill in the blanks i mean they they do a brilliant job of of painting a picture of that world but then they kind of leave you to sort of fill in the blanks and i think that that's the perfect perfect balance well by the by the time that you sort of saw all of the the sort of zion city and everything like that in the second and third films you sort of become a bit sympathetic to the uh, to the robot overlords, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I completely changed where my sympathies were. The second and third films came into came into existence. Yeah, you the first film essentially the the universe in the future is restricted to just that pocket in that ship, which actually means that there's quite a considerable level of trust that um, Keanu Reeves's character has to has to basically have in in like whatever Morpheus is actually actually telling him. Um he's mentioned this city that everybody lives in. Hasn't been to see it. Could be could be sort of completely pulling the wool over his eyes. 
Joe, I think you've been doing some interesting research into uh, some of the actors that uh, appeared in this film. Well, I was particularly interested to see what happened uh, in terms of sort of any acting careers of the the potentials in the Oracle's waiting room and. Very few of them seem to have gone on to to do anything of note since then, with the exception of the Yuri Geller-esque Spoon Boy, who has not only appeared in Home and Away, which he he sort of has appeared in twelve episodes of. The, a lot of the film was obviously sort of shot in in Australia and used quite a lot of Australian actors, including including Spoon Boy. But he's also <laughs> gone on to. To, to do the, the adults only thriller X Night of Vengeance. I'm assuming this is when he's a little bit older. I think he's a little bit older, a little bit. He's grown up into this. And then, um, Rosemary's Romantic Rendezvous. It's nice. It's nice that, you know, romance isn't dead in the uh, adult film industry. And I think Nick and Seaton's Palace of Sexy Secrets. Mm. Are you going to be uh, tracking these films down, Joe? I, I am not, but I thought it was it was in, it would be interesting to share that with the wider world. These minor characters in these films, it's often interesting to kind of uh, look them up and uh, see what see what happens to them uh, afterwards. So yeah, he seems to have had a very diverse career. We've also looked at uh, some of the actors who potentially could have been playing the Neo role in this film as well. The Wachowski's choice for this originally apparently had been Johnny Depp, uh, which. Would have would have given it a slightly different dynamic. Warner Brothers though wanted either Brad Pitt or or Val Kilner to to play this role. And then in addition, apparently Ewan McGregor was asked, Tom Cruise was asked, and Nicolas Cage was asked. And spectacularly, Will Smith turned it down so that he could go off and do Wild Wild West instead. <laughs> Oh dear! Of all the uh, of all the films to uh, to go off and make instead of the Matrix, uh, Wild Wild West is uh, yeah most most unfortunate to say uh, to say the least. But uh, let's sort of talk a little bit more about the uh, other actors in this film. There's quite a few um, very stylized, um, self-conscious performances in this film. What do you think about the sort of the acting uh, that's on display here? I, I mean, a lot of them seem to be, in retrospect, sort of. I feel as though they're, they're all playing a lot of the roles as though they are all dead inside. Um, <laughs> and that, that might, that might be harsh, but I, I mean, Keanu Reeves is, is obviously sort of established, I think, and well known for not, not sort of particularly dramatic roles, I think. And yeah, he takes, his sort of wooden qualities to to potentially new levels in this film. Lawrence Fishburne's character, I think you you have already mentioned how it does sort of tend to verge on the pompous. A lot of the the dialogue that he says is painfully slow. I think <laughs> Carrie Ann Mo- Moss's uh, character, I felt uh, in terms of sort of the lack of lack of feeling, I. There were certain scenes, and I'm not sure if you would agree with this, but I think in particular when uh, you've had the the double cross by Cypher, Joey Pants's character, mm. and you've basically got sort of people being effectively murdered in front of in front of uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. There's very little reaction from from Carrie Ann Moss to to <laughs> what is going on, and these are people that. Like you can understand Keanu Reeves's character has not really known these people very long, yeah. so perhaps not going to get as worked up. But I mean, 
you, you would expect sort of more of a reaction from from the Trinity character in in that regard, rather than just a goddamn you cipher, and that's it. <laughs> well, she is almost like a female Keanu Reeves in her sort of lack of emotional range. I don't know how many I don't know how many other films you've seen her in. I've seen her in in a few, and she's she's never struck me as the world's greatest uh, actress. She was in a film called Elephant Song, which was at the um, Vancouver International Film Festival last year, and I can't remember her being in it, and I watched that film, and that's <laughs> that's not a good sign. But I think um, somebody who does um, give a very good performance, um, it's obviously a very theatrical, sort of pantomime villain-type performance, is obviously Hugo Weaving as um, Agent Smith. And uh, when I was re-watching this film before this podcast, uh, I, I was really enjoying his performance um, in this film. I think he, he gives a, a great uh, turn here. He's fantastic in this, and... It, it was definitely the first film that I can remember watching Hugo Weaving in, and he is basically the star of the show. I think he's he's also probably benefited the most out of any of the actors from the Matrix franchise. I think he's the one that's actually gone on and done quite a lot of decent other roles off the back of this. Yeah, I'd agree with you. He His performance is the standout performance for me, and it's probably the thing that actually I enjoy most um, about re-watching this film is his his performance in here. It's just, it's delightfully theatrical, the way he uh, delivers his lines with r- real relish, and he creates a really memorable character. I think actually he, he probably has, I think, the best scene where he's basically sort of doing the, the interrogation of the Morpheus character and basically sort of takes off his, takes off his glasses, takes off his headset, earpiece and, and sort of level, levels with, with Morpheus, uh, like his, his sort of unhappiness about being in the situation that he is in. The fact that he, like, hates humanity, like, completely feels it's a disease that needs to be eradicated. He's the cure. And you just got that, like, menacing, menacing sort of quality just sort of shining through from him. Get no argument from me, Joe. But uh, I think you've led us nicely on to uh, the reason we're talking about this film, because it's during that scene where Morpheus is being interrogated that we get the uh, chopper fireball. So this sequence is happening in uh, a skyscraper and Keanu pops up in a helicopter. There's a big shootout and big lol Fishburne jumps from the building uh, into the chopper. The uh, Whirlybird is being piloted by Trinity, and as she veers off, uh, Agent Smith shoots his gun and holes the fuel tank, which seems to uh, also damage the chopper's controls as well. So Keanu and Morpheus are able to sort of jump onto the roof of a sort of skyscraper that they're passing over, whilst the out-of-control chopper crashes into the side of a building, but not before Trinity is able to uh, engineer a spectacular escape by uh, jumping onto the end of a handy rope which... Uh, Keanu is on the other end of. Joe, what did you make of the uh, exploding helicopter here? I think it's one of the highlights, I have to say. Uh, it's come off the, uh, it comes basically at the end of what's been quite a, quite a sort of large amount of good set pieces. So we, we mentioned the, the big lobby shoot 'em up that got Trinity and Neo into the building to begin with. I think we mentioned, we've mentioned a lot about the, the slow motion in this film. And I think actually this is where one of, one of the main um, instances where the slow motion really works very well. I think you sort of see every aspect of this 
helicopter explosions that happen step by step. So you sort of see see sort of the helicopter slow mowing into the the side of the skyscraper. You have a beautiful sort of ripple effect, and and then ultimately the explosion that you see all of as the as Trinity is hauled hauled back up by by Neo. Yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic sequence, and I'd agree with you. Actually, having criticised uh, some of the use of uh, slow motion in this film, I would I would agree with you. It's used really well here, and it allows you because otherwise this sequence would take place so quickly you possibly wouldn't have a chance to really sort of appreciate every step which is sort of happening here and also i think it serves to it's used really well to um, heighten the heighten the drama um if i was really going to nitpick i feel that the star of this sequence is really trinity's escape from the uh, escape from the helicopter and the explosion feels a little bit like punctuation at the end of a sentence rather than it being the sort of the climax of the sequence um but you know i uh, i think i'm 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 really sort of nitpicking there i think that the uh, the sequence as a whole is uh, is is uh, thoroughly excellent the uh, yeah as you've mentioned the the cgi ripple of the building that's a nice touch um and then we get a fairly decent pretty impressive chopper fireball at the end of it you also find out what the what the what type of helicopter it is. It's actually included in the dialogue before before Trinity gets into the helicopter. She asks for a, a pilot program for a for a military M109 helicopter. So it's it's nice to know what's actually going to be exploding in front of you as as, as sort of chopper fireball explosions go. The extra detail is uh, is a nice added bonus. Have we uh, actually checked if that make of helicopter exists? I have no idea if that make of helicopter exists, <laughs> but it's nice to have a, a type of helicopter included in the dialogue. Right, well, I think that just about wraps things up for uh, today's show. It just remains for me to say thank you and goodbye to my guest, Joe. Um, I hope you can come back on another show in the future, Joe. Thanks, Will. I'm very happy to come back. Hopefully, if you do come back, it'll be we'll be talking about a film which has an exploding helicopter in, but also one that you've starred in as well, maybe. That would be the dream. Okay, so if you've enjoyed listening to the show, then please check out the Exploding Helicopter website, or you can find us on Twitter at Chopper Fireball. We'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters.